Today we begin a series on the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a spectacular um, run through all the theology that the Christian church needs. It comes at a, an interesting time in our day and age when the average person who attends church in America can't list the 10 most important doctrines of the church. The most common statement I hear when I talk to people, either at the University of Houston or, or other places, is this. We don't need doctrine. We need worship. First of all, if you don't have doctrine, you don't know who you are worshiping. You don't know what worship means, and you don't know how to live your life as a believer. So we're going to talk about a lot of things that have to do with history, a lot of things that have to do with what Paul was doing and why he was doing it. But before we get started, let's consider this. In any situation in the world, you need a firm foundation. If you're an athlete, you need to know the basics of how to play the game you're playing, whether that game be basketball, football, sumo wrestling, or, you know, lacrosse, which the Cherokee invented, so you're welcome. Anyways, here's the thing. You need a firm foundation if you're going to be a Christian. To be a believer in Jesus Christ, you have to know the basics. You know what Bible stands for? The word Bible stands for basic instructions before leaving earth. It's a song, and it's a very true statement. So today we're going to begin this book of Romans. We're going to begin to look at these basic doctrines that give us a firm foundation. Now, the book of Romans has a wonderful, rich history. It also begins in chapter 1, verse 1, and it's going to lay out for us a threefold purpose for the book. When Paul came to this book, he came to this book with a lot of love, a lot of trepidation, a lot of anxiety. He wanted to lay out for these people in Rome exactly who Jesus Christ was. Now, remember, Paul, at this point in his ministry, had not gone to Rome yet. He had not been there. He had not been given the opportunity by God to preach to those who were in Rome. So this was a very important thing for him. The book of Romans was written in about 56 A.D., 56 AD is during the reign of Nero, one of the more wicked and despicable emperors in the Roman history. Now, this was written from Corinth to the believers in Rome by Paul because he had not been there yet. Now, most of the church of Rome had been founded by those who were present on the day of Pentecost. You remember what the day of Pentecost was. That's when they got together to celebrate those first fruits. And they came into Jerusalem, all those believers from all over the world. That's when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the church. That's when they spoke in the tongues of languages of men. So the gospel could begin to spread. Those who were there who were from Rome heard the gospel in their own language. They took it back to Rome. They gathered together. They had been Jews. They had been proselytes. They came together to form this new, completed Jewish church. They began to share about what they had heard on the day of Pentecost, what they had gathered from the people who were there. So this was a wonderful church that started very, very strong. But as yet, the apostles had not been there to lay down the foundation. So Paul is going to give them a foundation. If you will, he's going to give them Christianity 101, the basics of what it means to be a believer. He's going to start right here in chapter 1 with the eternal cornerstone, Jesus Christ. 
the, the building stone, the, 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 the chief place where we begin is with who Jesus is. Take a look at this. Romans 1.1. 1, 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Remember the word gospel means good news or glad tidings. So this good news from God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh and was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. You could spend a week, literally, you could spend a week discussing just those first four verses. Why? Because they lay down who Jesus Christ was. It says right here, he was promised beforehand in the scriptures. Every time we come to Easter, every time we come to Christmas, what do we talk about? Prophecy, promises, over 400 promises given to the people of Israel about who the Messiah would be. Now, the Messiah didn't have to fit one of those promises or 10 of the promises or even 20 of the promises. Mathematically, a person could not fulfill even 20 prophecies of Scripture if he was not the Messiah. It is mathematically impossible. I can show you the numbers. They are mind-numbing. How impossible it would be for any person to accidentally fulfill 20 scriptures, yet Jesus fulfilled over 400 of them. He fulfilled them all in his life and his death and his resurrection. That's why he says it right here. He was promised beforehand. He was Jesus Christ. Christ was not his last name. His last name would have been Joseph, Ben Joseph. So then Yeshua Ben Yosef. That was his actual Hebrew name. Christ is just the Greek version of the word Mashiach or Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the anointed one. That is what they called him because that is who he was. A descendant of David according to the flesh because he is in that lineage. Remember Mary and Joseph both are in the lineage of David. Although Joseph is disqualified because of the blood curse on the, on the line of Jeconiah which is where um, Joseph comes from, but Mary is descended through a different member of the family. She is still in the royal family, but she is not under the blood curse. Therefore, she and she alone could bear the Messiah. Such an important thing. And then he goes along. He was, uh, he was counted as the powerful son of God according to the movement of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection of the dead. Remember this. Without the resurrection, we are all wasting our time. If there was no resurrection, no resurrection of the dead, Paul said, then you are wasting your time following Jesus. Without the resurrection, there is no payment for the penalty of sin. The soul that sins shall die. It says so in the scriptures. Remember, these were Jewish Romans. They had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast, and they were there because they were converts to Judaism. They knew all of these promises already. All that happened in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, they were given the evidence that Jesus fulfilled all of these promises. Are you firmly convinced in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Messiah? That is the most important question you will ever have to ask yourself. Not was Jesus a good guy, not was Jesus a great teacher, not was he a great preacher, was he the actual incarnate son of God? If you can't say yes to that, you've got big problems. 
Because you can't have faith in Jesus if you don't believe who he says he is. And that's really important. He goes on to verse 5, says this, Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. Now how? Among all the Gentiles, including you who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's an important word, church. After you have settled the issue of who Jesus is, we need to settle the question of who you are. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a heavily Catholic area. So saints were people recognized by the church as having done miracles and done miraculous things. And it was only the few and the proud who made that title. Unfortunately, that is not biblical. The biblical definition of a saint is sitting right over there. Raymond is a saint. Kim is married to Raymond, and for that reason alone, she is also a saint. Can I get an amen? There we go. Okay, any wife who stays faithfully with a man for any reason is a saint. Anyone who calls upon Jesus Christ as Savior goes from the word sinner to the word saint. A sinner is a positional term. I'm teaching again. A position meaning you are opposed to God. You think, okay, maybe there's a God somewhere, but I don't want God telling me how to live. I don't want God telling me what to do. I, I love all these protests. It's my body. It's my decision. Okay, great. It's also your consequences for the decisions that you make. You say you want to live your life without God. God will totally respect that decision. And on the day of judgment, you will get exactly what you asked for, which is a life without God. Now, can you imagine anything more horrible than stepping into the afterlife, stepping before that throne and knowing that you are the one who asked for this punishment? You asked for this judgment because you asked not to have God interfere with your life. So we don't ever say these things because people don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear the truth. But Paul is giving them the truth right here because he's not in Rome yet. Interestingly, this is 56 AD, two years into the reign of Nero. Nero will die at the hands of his own people in 68 or so, about 68. Now, Paul is dead under the reign of Nero, so he is going to be dead in the next 10 years. He is going to go to Rome as a prisoner, stand before the emperor, and then be judged and die. So he is telling them what they need to know, not knowing that within 10 years he will stand there and be able to answer all their questions in person. He's just giving them the foundation, and that's amazing. Let's go back to this word saint. You are actually, according to the word of God in Greek, a hagios. You are a hagios. Now, for those of you who are married to men, the word hagios means an awful thing. Isn't that amazing? An awful thing. But that's the word awful with an E. Awe-filled. Those who are called of God are awe-filled people because we have been touched and changed by the presence of God. This goes to that word holiness in Hebrew. It means you are set apart. It means you are set apart for a purpose. I've told you so many times, God has a purpose for your life. Maybe when you're young, you think, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to go. This is who I want to be. That's good. But as soon as you become a Christian, 
your what I want to be changes. Because sometimes God has a plan for you that's not exactly your plan. I saw some people getting into it the other day at school. And they were having a dispute about their relationship. And their fight was, well, I want you to be this, but I don't want to be that. And I'm thinking in my head, okay, if she wants you to be this and you don't want to be that, you need to go find somebody who wants you for who you are. Because in a relationship, you got to give. Can I get an amen on that one? you got to give somewhere. Okay, when God enters into this covenant relationship with you, he's going to show you who you can be under his grace, under his mercy, through his power. But to have all of that available to you, you have to submit to who God is and what God wants for your life. Maybe you, you feel in your heart you should do something. Maybe you feel in your heart you should be something, but you're afraid. Maybe, maybe God has put a vision in your head of who you're going to be, what you're going to do, and you don't like it. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I can't do this. This is too hard. I don't have the right skills, the right abilities. Well, guess what? You're right. You don't. God does. God has the ability to take you and make you into anything he wants you to be for his glory, for his purpose. So he's saying to them who are in Rome, you are saints. You are called. I believe the word is kaleo, to pull beside God is pulling you beside him, and he's going to walk through this life with you. He's going to walk through this life with you because he's calling you to be something unique, something special. Just like gentlemen, when you drop to your knee and you ask that wonderful woman next to you to marry you, you are calling her beside you. Now, when you call someone alongside you, there's a lot of responsibility with that. Can I get an amen? A lot of responsibility because she's responding to your call. When you respond to the call of Jesus Christ, he is responsible to give you what you need to be who you need to be. Imagine that. God did not call you to sit in a pew. He called you to be a holy vessel. He called you to be an awe-filled thing. And I think that is so amazing. He calls us to be more than we ever thought we could be. So he's talking to these people in Rome. He's not met them yet. But he's saying, you are so special because Jesus, the cornerstone, is entering into this walk with you. That's who you are. He starts off by identifying them. Second thing, which is the second purpose he has in writing, he wants to explain his, Paul's, mission to build up the church. Look at it right here. Romans 1.8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. Even, the, even though the apostles had not been there, what they had received at Pentecost, that movement of the Spirit, that word that they had received, was growing among them. They were becoming people who were an example. Paul has said this a couple times to different churches, saying, hey, word of you has spread. Wouldn't it be great if word of you had spread? If when people talk about you, your name, your marriage, your relationships, they say there's something unique about this person, something unique about this family, something amazing that's different from everybody else. Wouldn't that be fantastic? That's what happens when you follow Jesus Christ. You become something completely different that the whole world is going to pay attention to. So it goes on. 
Verse 9, God is my witness whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his son that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow possible in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you, for I want very much to see you. So Paul is anxious to meet these amazing Christians in Rome whose, whose reputation is spread throughout the world. He wants to meet them. He says, that is to be, okay, so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift. If you've got your Bible, underline that. Spiritual gift. To strengthen you. And that is to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now this word spiritual gift is often misused in the modern church. We associate spiritual gifts with either being a preacher or being someone who speaks in tongues. Those are only two of an infinite number of gifts that God gives to his people. In fact, this word spiritual gift is the word charisma. Do you know the word charisma? We say that someone has charisma. We say Peyton is a charismatic young man. He has a charisma. Well, that's a takeoff of this. This gift of God that is abiding in someone. This spiritual gift that God gives for his glory. Remember this. God gives you your gifts and abilities so that you can show his goodness, his grace, and his amazingness. I, I was sad to watch a, a documentary on great pop singers uh, of the past, and they included Whitney Houston in this. And they were talking about how all of these people learned to sing in church. They learned to sing in the church choir. They learned to sing with hymns. They learned to sing with these songs that were spiritual and that were meant to give glory to God. And then it traced their lives how as they turned away from that gift, as they turned away from the God who gave them the gift, that their lives began to spiral out of control and ultimately end in self-destruction. And it is true. God can give us wonderful gifts. And we can enjoy the gifts God gives us. You know, never wanted to be a preacher, but I enjoy preaching and explaining God's word. I never meant to be a, a church musician for the last 30 years, but that's how I snagged my wife, so I'm not complaining. And I've had the pleasure of playing in churches all over the world. Never set out to do that, but this is what I do. This is the gift God's given me. Although, depending on how much you love music, you may or may not consider it quite that much of a gift. Anyways, so he talks about spiritual gifts right here in this passage. Consider 1 Peter 4, 8 through 11. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Can we do that, church? Above all, can we keep loving each other? He says you know, he wants to be encouraged by their faith as they are encouraged by his faith. We can encourage each other every Sunday when we come, when we show up. When we have that smile, when we have that reflection, when we have that testimony of how good God is, what many things God has done for us. When we're here, we encourage one another. Since love covers a multitude of sins, that's a whole nother sermon and we'll get there soon. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I'm sorry, I'm not the world's most hospitable person. When I'm home, I'm a hermit. So I'm not always the most not complaining person in the world, but I'm doing my best under God's grace. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. Understand that every gift you have is to bless other people. These gifts are to serve one another because you are a steward. 
If you watch the Lord of the Rings, you know about the steward of Gondor. He was not the king. He was meant to take care of the kingdom until the king came for his own. A steward is just a caretaker. Okay, it's a caretaker. We are caretakers of the gifts that God gives us. We have people who are great teachers. They are stewards of God's gift. We have people who are great singers, people who are great workmen, great servants, people who come up here and do things when no one's looking, whether that be cutting the grass or fixing the pump or, or doing all these other things. They are doing it because they have a gift and they use that gift to serve other people. And there's nothing wrong with using your gift to make a living. That just That's nothing wrong with that. But the purpose of it, the primary purpose is to serve the church. Don't ever forget that. The primary purpose of the gift God gave you is to serve his people. And it says, you are a good steward of these graces. Whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. So if you're going to speak about important things, speak about the word of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. How do you not get tired serving in church? Because you're serving God. The church is just the recipient of your work. Your service is to God, not to the church. Sometimes people in church can be very, um, well, we're going to skip that one for now because I don't want to go there. Anyways, we're just going to keep going. So whoever speaks these oracles, let him speak the words of God. Whoever serves, let him serve as one who is strengthened by God in order that everything God may be glorified through Christ Jesus. To him belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you want a list of those gifts, you can go to 1 Corinthians 12. There's a whole list of all these gifts, teaching, interpreting, serving, ministering, helping. They were women in the first century church. All they did was make clothes and give it to those who didn't have enough. They would make it for the saints. They were those who would prepare food for the apostles so that they could minister, they could teach, and they were fed by the grace of these people. And Paul, Paul mentions the women of the church who supported him in all that he did. No single person is unimportant when it comes to giving your gifts to God. There are people who are great cooks. And as far as I'm concerned, great cooks are great ministers of the gospel. Amen. It's the truth. People who decorate trees and do great jobs of it. You know, that's a ministry to the whole church. Everyone benefits from the beauty of it. You may not think it's important, but it's important. Every gift that is used properly is important. So that first thing I want you to see is, we have to establish the cornerstone of Jesus Christ. And in that, establishing who we are in Christ. We are saints. We're not sinners. We're not poor, broken people. We have been restored to God. Therefore, we are restored. Now, whether or not you live in that restoration or whether you live in the brokenness before it, that's up to you and the Lord. But you've been set free to live a way better, way different life. And the second thing, Paul's mission, he wanted them to know, I'm here to build you up. I'm here to strengthen you. I'm here to help you see how you can use your gifts for everyone's benefit. Third thing is this. Paul wanted to show them confidence. This is what confidence looks like. Possibly one of the most important passages in the book of Romans is right here. We're about to read it. Romans 1, 13. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often planned to come to you, but was prevented until now. We know in the scriptures, Paul oftentimes had a plan in his mind 
where he wanted to go next. But God would not permit it. God would sidetrack him. God would send him somewhere else. God would send him, instead of going to Asia, he would wind up going to Europe. And he didn't intend to go there, but that's where God put him. And when we see later the consequences, the woman Lydia, the seller of purple, a very, very important, powerful woman in the first century church because she supported the apostles. She was over here in Europe. Had Paul gone to Asia and gone this direction, he would never have found her. But in going this direction where God put him, he met her, brought her to Christ, and changed the face of the first century church. You don't know what blessing you will be by going where God takes you. You may wonder why you're there, but God will show you why you're there. You've got something to do. You've got someone to be. Let's go on. He says, I was prevented until now in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had amongst the rest of the Gentiles. Remember, Paul started out as a Pharisee, a teacher to the Jews, but he didn't get to stay that. God said, I have set before him a different path. He is going to carry my word to the Gentiles. Why? He was Saul of Tarsus. He was Saul of a Romanized city, and he knew the Roman world well. So he was uniquely suited to go to the Gentiles and not to ignore the Jews, but to go to those who really God had prepared him to reach out to. So it's always what God is doing. Verse 14 says this, I am obligated both to the Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you who also are at Rome. How, how eager are you to share your faith in Jesus Christ? Don't answer that. How passionate are you to encounter someone that you can share Jesus Christ with? Got news for you, people. The job of the pastor is to teach the students. The job of the students is to pass the knowledge on to the rest of the world. My job is to make sure you understand what's in this word so that you can explain it to everybody that you know. There are people out there who will never listen to me. Yeah, I'm good looking. Yeah, I wax eloquent. Yeah, I impress myself even. They'll never listen to me because of what I am. I am a preacher. I'm a pastor. And as soon as they hear that, they don't want to have anything to do with me because they know what they're going to hear. They're going to hear the truth. And they know that I'm going to give it to them whether they want it or not. So they won't associate with me. But man, take a bunch of guys out fishing and they go listen to you. Go play some sports, man. Get on that field and do your best athletically. People will look at you. They will listen to you. They will pay attention to you. Spin those plastic rims. Be a DJ and make sure that they know exactly who you are DJing for. I'm telling you, you are the most important people in this church because you take the gospel with you out to the rest of the world. I am obligated to them. I have a longing, I have a passionate desire to do this. Consider 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17. I have no right to boast just because I preach the gospel. I wish pastors could understand this. I really do. I have no right to boast just because I preach the gospel. After all, I am under orders to do so. I am obligated to do. God gave him a direct order. You go do this. When I encountered Jesus Christ in my call to ministry, I did not want it, but I knew I had to do it. Because when God says it, 
Just like when your wife tells you something, you got to do it. You are obligated. It's necessary if you want to sleep in the house at night. It's important. And that's exactly how we felt. I have no right to boast just because I preach the gospel. After all, I am under orders to do so. And how terrible it would be for me if I did not preach the gospel. If I did not work as a matter of free choice, then I could expect to be paid. But I do it as a full duty because God has entrusted me with this task. This is Jeremiah. He said, Lord, you lied to me. You gave me this message and they're not listening to me. That's what he said. He says, Lord, I decided I'm not going to preach your word anymore. I'm not going to tell people the truth. Let them all burn. That's what he said. He says, but when I closed my mouth, there was a fire shut up in my bones. I could not restrain it. I could not hold back the truth of your word. And therefore it comes out. He paid the price for it. They hated him. They tried to kill him. And that's just how it goes when you're God's servant. But here's the thing. When you are called to do something, you have to do it. You have to do what God calls you to do, or you'll never know peace. Can I get an amen? You won't have any peace. He says this, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Those of you who love words, the word power is dunamis. You know what English word we get from dunamis? Dynamite dynamite, that powerful, explosive element that can be that can do everything. It can damage buildings, or it can open up passageways through mountains. It can open up mines. It can do all kinds of things. This word is the word for miraculous power, supernatural power. So the word of God that he preaches is the supernatural power of God unto the saving of people. It says here, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. When we preach the word of God without changing it or modifying it or watering it down or editing it up, we are releasing power into someone's life, a power that can change them. Remember, in all things we are farmers. We plant seeds, we water seeds, we fertilize seeds. Who gives the increase? God. The Holy Spirit is the one who reaps the harvest of souls. That's not my gig. My job is not to convert people. My job is to educate people, train them, teach them, and pray that God will bring them to salvation because I can't do it. I can't save anybody, but God can. All I can do is plant, water, fertilize. Amen? takes a lot of pressure off you. It really does. Your job is not to save people. It's to let them know the truth. That's the, way, that's the way it goes. It says this also, for it is in the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. You just read the words right there that started the Protestant revolution that shattered the Catholic church. When Martin Luther did a study on this, he was a teacher. He said he saw these words, and they are from the Old Testament. They are repeated in the Old Testament. The just one, the righteous one, will live by his faith in God. People say, how did people get saved in the Old Testament? How did they get saved in those days when there was no Jesus? There was always a Jesus. Faith. Faith is how they were saved. They believed in Yahweh. They believed that Yahweh would save them, and they were obedient to Yahweh. 
That is what made Rahab the prostitute, Rahab the converted woman, Rahab the lineage of Jesus Rahab. She was just a hooker. But when God's Holy Spirit got a hold of her, she became one of the forerunners of King David, who was the forerunner of Jesus the Christ. Can you imagine that? Going from being a prostitute to being like the great-grandmother of David, king of Israel. That's what God does when we let him work in us. We can say no to God all day long. And honey, if you want to go up that river, you go up that river. You go right up that river and do what you want to do. But understand this. You will never know what you could have been if you had allowed God to work in you and save you. So we look at that word dunamis, miraculous power. The last thing I want you to see is right here. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5, and we are done. It says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. There are strongholds in your life. Strongholds called fear. Strongholds called I can't. Strongholds called not me. Strongholds called somebody else can do it. These are strongholds that get in our head and they prevent us from serving God. These strongholds say you're not smart enough. You're not tall enough. You're not skinny enough. You're not whatever it is that you think you're not. One of the best preachers in the history of the world was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a Brit, but I don't hold that against him. He was a round man. He was a big, round man. But he preached in a day when there were no microphones. He preached in a hall. All he had behind him was a curved wall. That curved wall acted like a spoon that shouted his voice all over the place. Thousands would come to hear him, and he had no emotion in his voice. Charles Haddon Spurgeon simply spoke the word of God like this. You must come to Jesus. No, no, no weeping, no crying, no waving, waving of handkerchiefs. He simply spoke the word of God and trusted God's word to do the work, and it changed England. It changed England forever, and from there it spread to the rest of the world. Big fat man. All he did is trusting God to do the work. He was simply faithful to preach, and he trusted God for everything else that happened. It says, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Believe me, look on the internet. Look at some of the discussions between atheists and Christians. And when you find a Christian who holds to the word of God and simply says, this is what it says, the, the atheist loses every time. Why? Because you can put the truth of God against the lies of atheism, and guess what? They can't hold up. That's why it says we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion held up against God. That's our job. We're wall breakers. We are people that are meant to simply put the truth out there and let it do its job. The question today is, now that you've heard this introduction to the book of Romans, now that you, like a Roman, are hearing for the first time that you are saints. God is the power to strengthen you. And through you, God can't do anything. The dunamis of God can change your friends, your family, your neighbors, your schools. The question is, will you let him? Will you let him change those things through you? Let's pray.